Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good, cro- good morning, Crosspoint, and thanks for joining us online, and welcome to all of the guests, uh, those few guests who are joining us this morning as we practice what it means to do a soft launch uh, as a church community uh, in person. Uh, if you've got a Bible handy, I get you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We're going to be digging into that this morning, uh, Psalm chapter 2. But let me start with a question this morning. Here's the question. Who is this? Spider-Man, Mary Jane, excellent, yep, bang on, yeah, this is from the 2002 movie, Spider-Man, that's Tobey Maguire, and that's Kirsten Dunst. Um, The question is, what are they about to do? Yes, they are about to kiss. As a matter of fact, this will be one of the most iconic kisses in movie history. Many have attempted it, few have succeeded. And just to complete the moment, let's look at the with that look, here it is. Yes, there is that moment. So romantic, heart-grabbing, epic, my feels. And all I can think of every time I watch that picture, it's like, dude, it's raining. You're going to get water up your nose. What's wrong with this moment? Now, have you ever thought about how strange kissing actually is? I mean, think about it. I mean, you're essentially engaging 100. 46 muscles in your body for this moment, 34 facial muscles, 112 postural muscles in order to mash a wet orifice of flesh against somebody else's wet orifice of flesh. That's that's essentially what we're doing. Now, have I ruined kissing for you this morning? Good. Let's keep going. Uh, There was actually a study in the Netherlands that found that a 10-second kiss can transfer as many as 80 million bacteria from one person to another. I mean, not to mention a whole lot of coronavirus. I mean, this study was done before coronavirus actually happened. So if you kiss your spouse nine times in a day, you will probably have the exact same microbial communities living in your mouth as your spouse's mouth. This is what they found out. Uh, So that means every time you pucker up, microbes from your spouse's mouth will pack their suitcases, will commute to another mouth, and will set up and move into your neighborhood. Okay, think about that. There are 700 different types of bacteria living in your mouth right now. Hmm. Think about it. Romantic kissing is actually weird. And as it turns out, the majority of the world's population agrees with me. Yesterday, I spent some time and I read a scholarly article called, uh, that asked the question, is the romantic sexual kiss a near human universal? Published by American anthropologists. I'm not making this up. There's an actual study that studied this in the world today. And yes, I actually took the time to read it because I'm weird that way. Okay. But here's the answer. The answer to the question is no, it's not. It is not universal across the world. As a matter of fact, they studied 168 cultures around the world, and they found that in 54% of the cultures in the world, they do not do this. In fact, some societies actually think that the Western idea of kissing is actually pretty gross. One, one culture actually said, why would I want to share my food with somebody else in this way? Okay, that's the question. 
So as it turns out, the kiss can mean many different things, and there are many different types of kisses with many different types of meanings. You may ask, why am I talking about this this morning? Where am I going with this? Well, hold on to that question for a bit. It's all going to make sense in about 10 minutes as we dive into Psalm 2 together. But before we plunge into Psalm 2, I think we need to have a little bit of a background to this psalm. Uh, both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, as it turns out, are introductions into the book of Psalms. And a number of weeks ago, I talked about Psalm number 1. And in Psalm number 1, uh, I, I, if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go back and look into our archives and check it out. I won't have the time to look into it this morning. But one writer has said that you can actually look at each one of the Psalms, Psalm number 1 or Psalm number 2, as an individual doorway into the Psalms, as a separate door. And each one of those psalms invites you, the reader, to read the psalms in a very different way, different perspective. Psalm 2 is a kingship psalm. It is a royal psalm. And most scholars believe that it, it, it was actually read at the coronation ceremony of a new king who came into Israel. So whenever a, a new king was inaugurated, what would happen is the high priest would anoint him with oil. Uh, this anointing, of course, means that it was a symbol of the king being set apart for God's service, uh, holiness, blessing of God, the favor of God, all of that. And during that time, while he was being anointed with oil, Psalm 2 was actually read. Now, this psalm later became to be understood as a messianic psalm. So it was a pointer to a future king who would come to liberate Israel, rule over her, and restore her fortunes. So as we go through the psalm, keep all of this in mind as we read it together. And you'll notice that as we go through it, the psalm is actually broken down into four stanzas. And each one of those stanzas acts as a separate scene for the psalm. So there's going to be scene changes that are going to be taking place. And we'll get to kissing in the fourth scene. All right, let's start at uh, verse 1. Here's what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the first scene actually takes place in a fictional council chamber. And it's as if the, the, the leaders of the world have gathered together in secret and, and they're representing the, the rest of the people on the planet and they're plotting against the Lord and they're plotting against his anointed leader, the king. But it, interestingly enough, there's, there's a bit of a futility to their plotting. See, in the first question, it's, it's right there. It says, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? I mean, don't they know who they're actually plotting against? It, it, this plotting, it's, it's pointless. It's, it, it's futile. It's like trying to empty the ocean with a spoon, right? There's no, there's no actual real weapon that they can raise against God. The only thing they actually have against God are their words. And what's interesting in this psalm is, is actually how people view their relationship with the Lord. You see, they, they see this relationship, this obedience to God as, as shackles. And they want to break away from his restrictions on their lives. They want to live lives on, kind of on their own terms without hindrances. And so because of this, they begin plotting against the Lord, and not just against the Lord, but against his king. Let's read on. Verse 4. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
So now there's a scene shift. The scene shifts away from the, 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 the ground, and it moves up to heaven, to the Lord's throne room. And, and the rulers, it's interesting, they might think that they're kind of holding a secret meeting, you know, whispering together, Lord's not going to hear about this. But of course the Lord knows. I mean, nothing's hidden from the Lord of the universe. He sees all, he knows all. And, and you'll notice how he responds uh, when he hears of their plans of rebellion. It's interesting. What does he do? He just, he just laughs. And then it says that he holds them in derision, which, which basically means he, he actually mocks them for what they're trying to do. It's, it's one of those facepalm moments, right? He can't believe that they're actually serious. I mean, think about it. I mean, can a handful of mice really take down a grizzly bear? Can, can you tear down a mountain with a nail file? Will, will 20 buckets of water ever snuff out the sun? Right? So we're talking about the finite trying to take down the infinite. We're talking about the created trying to destroy the creator. But the Lord's answer to the rebellion, it's interesting, it's surprising, and it's unexpected. I mean, he could just snuff them out, right? He could just end it all, right? But instead, his solution to the rebellion is to install a human king on the throne in Jerusalem. And it says that this very idea will somehow shake them in their boots. I mean, we think about that, but well, a king, right? I mean, what's so terrifying about that, right? I mean, a king on a throne? Uh, this is, of course, no ordinary king. I mean, we're often when we think of kings, we have these caricatures in mind, or we think of futile kings or feeble kings or kind of foolish kings or whatnot. Um, so this isn't the king of George, the, the mad King George from the musical Hamilton, okay? You know my mad King George? Everybody! No? Okay, you don't know? All right, you got to see Hamilton. Mad King George, Okay. This isn't the king that we have in mind here. Instead, this is the Lord's anointed. This is his chosen representative, and it says who he has set on his throne. It's a different type of king. So let's read on. Verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so now we have, we have another scene shift. And this time we're back on earth, but this time we're back on Mount Zion and we're actually in the throne room for Israel. And now at this moment in the psalm, the king himself speaks. So, so this would have been the voice of David, or this would have been a voice of the king at that time who was actually being inaugurated as the king of Israel. Uh, remember, this is, this is supposed to be part of an inauguration ceremony. So it might have actually been part of the ceremony where the new king actually said these words as part of the ceremony. And there's a lot in here. I mean, this is full of a lot of information. Uh, so to make sense of it, I think we need to look at some of the backstory that's involved in this psalm. So the question is this. First of all, what does it mean when it says, you are my son and I have begotten you? Well, I think to understand that question, we need to review something that's called the Davidic Covenant. Um, king David, you might remember, uh, was chosen to be king after the mad King Saul. David was a man after God's own heart. And when David uh, came into his inauguration, the prophet Nathan spoke to him and prophesied over him. And he talked about the Lord's covenant that he was making with King David at that time. So let's look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what it says. This is the, the prophecy over David of this new covenant. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. It's talking about Solomon and all of the kings to come. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, ah, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. But let me point out a couple of key observations about this covenant relationship. The first talks about the length of the relationship. The second talks about the nature of the relationship. So let's look at the length of the relationship. You'll notice that it says that this will be an everlasting relationship. In other words, this throne of David would be established forever. The covenant would be with David and with the line of David, his successors, his bloodline. This was a promise. Okay, this is important. This was a promise. There were no conditions to this. It was not contingent, right? His throne, it says, it's just going to last forever. It's going to happen no matter what. Stamp it, stamp it, no erases. Do not pass go. Do not accept $200. It does not matter. It is going to happen because God is a promise keeper. But second, you'll notice the nature of the relationship. The Lord, it says, would have a special relationship between himself and this king. And this relationship would be more like a father to a son. So it'd be this closer, intimate, more, more familial type of relationship. And then it's, of course, reinforced by this phrase, I have begotten you. And what does that mean? Well, it's, it's, it's essentially metaphorical language. It's, it's almost like a new birth was taking place at the time of the coronation, which just more emphasize the relationship that the king was going to have to the Lord, a kind of father-son type of relationship. Now, this father-son relationship, you'll notice, required that the king would be the Lord's representative. Because if he didn't, the Lord would rebuke him for it, right? So he was supposed to rule with holiness. He was supposed to rule with mercy and, and with justice. In other words, like father, like son. He was the Lord's representative on the earth. But also it gave the king authority. It says, ask of me and I will give the nations. So if you want, the nations are yours. You can rule all of them under my authority. And you can bring them to submission under me as a warrior king. All right, so let's look at the last stanzas of the, of the chapter 2. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, so the scene changes one last time. And this time, we're back with those original rulers, those original kings. But while they're there, a voice heralds to them from heaven and speaks to them. And it gives them a warning. It says, listen, the only wise thing you can do, in light of all of this, the only wise thing you can do is to end your rebellion because it's futile. It is pointless. If you truly understand how good and great and how powerful God is, then you'll serve him with fear and you'll rejoice with trembling. So the language that's being used is essentially you'll treat God with awe and with respect because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then, of course, we come full circle to this morning's beginning message, the beginning of this morning's message. Heaven sends a clear command to the peoples of the earth and to the rulers. And it says this. It says, kiss the son. 
So what is that all about? What does it mean to, to kiss the sun? Well, clearly, clearly, he's not talking about romantic kissing, okay? Because remember, a kiss can mean a whole lot of different things in many different cultures. There are many kinds of kisses, and there are many different types of interpretations of what a kiss actually means. I mean, for some cultures, kissing is a form of greeting or a, a form of saying goodbye. Uh, for some cultures, kissing is a sign of friendship. In other cultures, kissing is just a show of respect to people. In the ancient world, if you were to show respect to a king, if you were to pay homage to a king, you would kiss his feet or you would kiss the ground directly in front of his feet. This symbolized humility. It symbolized obedience. You were essentially bowing before that king and you were offering him everything. So when this text invites us to kiss the son, it means surrender everything to him. See, the psalmist says that the nations rage against the Lord because they, they see his leadership as bondage, as chains and as shackles, almost like a prison. So they, they want to be free of the Lord's authority, right? They want, they want to be free to do what they want. They want to call their own shots. They want to do what they want, when they want, and however they want it. But the psalm reminds us that the sun, the sun is not a prison. Instead, the sun is a refuge. A refuge is it different than a prison. You see, a refuge is, is not something you run from. A refuge is something that you run to. And so it says the sun is a refuge. He's a shelter from the storm. He's, he's a hospital for our pain. He's a haven from temptations. He's a safe house from our enemies. And I wonder how many of us today, in the midst of this crazy world that we're in right now, would say to ourselves, today I need a refuge. I really could use a refuge. And we can either rage against the sun or we could seek refuge in him. And it says that those who seek refuge in him will be blessed. So kiss the sun. Now, as we read through this psalm, you've probably got this thought that's kind of niggling at the back of your brain up to this point. You might be asking the question, I mean, when, in the, when was this psalm ever actually fulfilled? I mean, what king of Israel ever ruled this extensively? What, what king was ever a good son? See, if you read the Old Testament, you read the books of Samuels and then the kings, you discover that there were actually very few good kings. In fact, most of them were responsible for leading the people of God away from the Lord rather than towards the Lord. And not only that, but the monarchy in Israel eventually failed. It ended with the last king, who was Zedekiah. The temple was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And there has not been an established earthly monarchy in Israel since that time, 586 B.C., over 2,500 years ago. So what do we make of this psalm? Does this psalm mean that God does not keep his promises? Well, the faithful in Israel understood that there was, of course, a deeper meaning to this psalm. And they understood that the Lord would one day keep his promises. And so the prophets foretold that they should expect a future Messiah from the line of David. And that word Messiah actually means anointed one. And ultimately, the disciples would come to see how Jesus completed the story of Israel, and he fulfilled the promise of Psalm 2. I mean, think of Jesus. Jesus, who was he? He was the only begotten son, fully God, fully human, a descendant of King David, and he would become the everlasting king who would rule over all of the nations. Remember, Psalm, Psalm 2, is, it, it's like a door 
to the book of Psalms. And it invites us to read the book of Psalms as the story that Jesus came to complete. It contains, it expresses a thousand hints and signposts to Jesus himself. And this is, in fact, when the early church read the Psalms, this is how they read it. They understood that Jesus was completing the story of Israel. And, and as they read through the Psalms, they could see pointers and signposts directing them to Jesus as they went through the text. And Psalm 2 sets the framework for God's response to my rebellion and to the world's rebellion. And this response from the Lord was shocking and surprising. God's response, you remember, was to establish the king on Zion. But this was actually not how the world expected it. See, God would send his good and faithful and royal son to Jerusalem. But he wouldn't go in on a warrior's steed to conquer. He would go in on a donkey. He wouldn't wear a crown of gold. He would wear a crown of thorns. And he wouldn't sit on a throne. Instead, he was raised up on a cross. And God's response to our rebellion was for his royal son to die. To take all of our selfish and treasonous independence upon himself as he died upon the cross. To pay that our due death penalty on our behalf. He would do that for us. So this was like an unexpected plot twist in the story of Psalm 2. The son didn't destroy his enemies. Instead, the son died in the place of his enemies. But of course, we know the story as believers in Christ. The grave could not hold him. And after three days, he rose again, demonstrating his victory over sin and over death and over the forces of evil and proving and demonstrating to all the world that he was who he said he was, the victorious son of God. And of course, the story doesn't end there. The story continues. And, and, and the rest of the story is that this warrior king will one day come again. And he will complete the promises of Psalm 2. As a matter of fact, we read about this in the book of Revelation. I mean, the New Testament references Psalm 2 in a number of different ways in so many places. But here's one of the key ones. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is, of course, none other than Jesus, the mighty warrior. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one day, friends, Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And the warrior king will defeat evil. He will fix everything. He will set everything right. He will deal with all the injustice and, and the horror and the brokenness in our world. And he will sit on the throne of Zion, as it says, and he will be a light to all of the nations. And this is how the story is completed, through Jesus. Jesus is the true king. He is the good son who does not fail and who will not fail. And so, friends, the, the, the words of the psalmist echo to us through the history, to us today, and they beckon us. They implore us. Kiss the son. Bow before him. Throw your life at his feet. Surrender to him. Make him re your refuge. You know, Jesus made this promise in John chapter 6, verse 40. He says, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him 
should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Kiss the son. Trust him with your life. Give him your all. You know, as, as I was putting this message together, I thought to myself, I mean, were there any incidents in the story of Jesus from the Gospels where people actually kissed the son? And it brought to mind two stories from the Gospel. The first is the story of Judas Iscariot, who was one of Jesus' closest companions. And, and at some point in, along the way in his relationship with Jesus, he succumbed to temptation. There was some sort of dark spiritual influence in his life, and he chose to no longer trust in Jesus. So he sold Jesus out to the chief priest for 30 pieces of silver. And then in the night, he guided an, an armed mob to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested. And in order to identify Jesus, what did he do? He walked with him, and he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He kissed the son. But his kiss of the son was, was a kiss of rejection. What was he doing? He plotted against the son. He raged against the son. But then there's another story. And it's in Luke 7. It's about a woman who crashed a party. And she crashed the party because she was so desperate to meet Jesus. But she was the type of woman that because of her reputation, she would never be invited to this party. Because the party took place at the home of a Pharisee, and the Pharisee's name was Simon. It was, a, it was the type of party where only upright, religious, shiny, happy, pretty people were invited. And see, of course, this woman wasn't any of those things. She was a sinful woman, which likely meant that in that culture, she was a prostitute. So she was outcast. She was unclean. She was a cautionary tale. She was a joke to so many people. And here she was, and she was trapped, and she couldn't escape her lifestyle. She couldn't break free from who she was, because in that community, there were no do-overs. There was no mercy. You just were who you were. And she, every day, she was being crushed by her guilt and her shame and her fear. And so one day, she heard Jesus went to a party, and she says, you know what? I'm going to go to that party, and I'm going to meet Jesus. And so she risked everything. She crashed the party. And as the story goes, as when she got into the party and she saw Jesus, she, she just broke. I mean, tears just started running down her face. The decades of shame and fear and loss just poured out of her face. And she carried a jar of alabaster oil with her, very expensive oil. And she went up to Jesus, who was reclining at the table, and she knelt at his feet. And her tears fell from her face, and they fell upon her feet. And then she took her hair, which hung low, which was, I mean, in that day was scandalous. She took her hair and she wiped the dirt off of his feet. And then it says, she kissed his feet and she anointed them with oil. She risked everything. She broke every protocol. She was completely vulnerable. She was completely surrendered. And the question is, why did she kiss the son. It's because she knew that she could trust Jesus with her life. I mean, she would have heard about Jesus' miracles, how he healed the cripple, he healed the leper, he raised somebody from the dead. I mean, she may have watched him accept the, the lost, the broken, the outcasts into his community. She would have heard his teachings about the kingdom, his teachings about love and acceptance and mercy and justice. And this was so, for her, this was her second chance. This was her one moment for a new beginning to find a refuge. And so she kissed the son. And after she did this, I mean, Simon objected and Jesus rebuked Simon for his objection. But at the end of, the vault, end of it all, how did Jesus respond to her? Well, we read about it in Luke chapter 7. 
says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus saw her. He forgave her. And he restored her. Because she kissed the son. Let me ask you today. Let me ask us today. What would it mean for us to kiss the son? I mean, maybe for you today, it means surrendering your life to Christ for the first time. Fully trusting him and say, yeah, I'm yours. Just take me. Be my refuge. Take away my guilt and fear and shame. Maybe, maybe for you today, it means trusting him again with your life. I don't know what's happened to you during coronavirus, during COVID. Maybe you've drifted. Maybe you've fallen into temptation and sin. Maybe you've done a whole bunch of stupid stuff for which you're ashamed. I don't know. But maybe for you, it's just to come again, once again, and trust him with your life. Or, or maybe for some of you this morning, it's just sitting at his feet in adoration and in thankfulness for all that he's given you and all that he's done in your life at this time. I don't know what that means for you. But whoever you are and wherever you are and wherever you find yourself today, Jesus is inviting you and he is inviting me to come and to kiss the son, to lay it all before him and surrender ourselves to him. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you just in a moment to reflect. And after that, we're going to enter into a time of communion. The beautiful thing about communion is it is a opportunity for us as the, the, king, the followers of Jesus in a regular rhythm to come and to kiss the son to offer ourselves to him, to remember and to reflect on what he's done and just offer thanksgiving and ourselves to him afresh. But let's pray together. Can we pray? God, you see us. You know us. And you forgive us and you restore us. And so God, we, wherever we are and wherever we're at, we just take ourselves before you. We kneel at your feet today and we kiss your feet we kiss the ground before you we surrender ourselves to you and thank you Jesus that you can be our refuge so we run to the refuge we don't run away from the prison thank you for your goodness and your grace and your power and your mercy and your justice. And we are in awe of you. And we praise you. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Well thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey. And it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website thecrosspointchurch.ca We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. 
If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.